Let me know when you're ready, Cheryl. All right, we're going to continue into Scripture. If we all uh, settle down, take our seats. This is actually fundamentally the most important part of our service, the faithful expository preaching of the Scriptures. There's nothing above it. I'm going to be reading from Romans chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 12 through 24. You can follow on the overhead. But I will be doing the teaching from verses 17 through 24 of Romans chapter 2. From the word of God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when the Gentiles, that's the unbelievers, do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law unto themselves, in that they show the work of the law inscribed or written in their hearts, their conscience is bearing witness, their thoughts alternately accusing or defending them, on the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. But if you bear the name Jew and rely on the law and you boast in God and you know his will, you approve the things that are essential, you're being instructed out of the law and you're confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of the knowledge of truth, you, you therefore, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shouldn't steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, are you robbing temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the unbelievers because of you, just as it is written. So let's dig into this text here. So, Romans 2.13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified, as you can see up on the text there. So what do we learn from our last time together? Well, we learned that the Jews thought that because they had the law, they had the Ten Commandments, that just because they possessed that, they were somehow right with God. They thought they didn't need to fear the wrath of God. <clears throat> In fact, they felt that they already had some, some kind of special relationship with God. But Paul sets them straight here, as you can see in the text. He says, listen, he says, it's not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So now, going way back 2,000 years ago, so the people would actually come to hear the law read to them. you got to remember, back then there was no local, no local TV, no newspaper, 
No Facebook, nothing. Just about everything that was taught was handed down orally by word of mouth. Just coming out to the town square and hearing the law, Paul's saying that's not enough. So we need church this morning to take that as heart to heart as well. You see, just coming to church on Sunday and hearing the preaching of the word, listen to me, has no value at all if we do not take what we've learned from the word of God and put it into practice in our lives. Look at these questions here. Next slide. Church, do we go home? and reflect on what we've heard when we come to church? Do we look at our life closely enough to see where we can put what we've been taught into practice in our lives? And here's one of the most important ones that's probably one of the most neglected ones. Do we make time each day to search the scriptures? Well, Pastor Jack, God would talk to me. Every time you opened up your Bible and you're reading it, God's talking. Never forget that. That is a fact. So Paul says here in, that the law was not enough and must be obeyed. So in verse 13, back then he's dealing with the Jews. Now in 14 and 15, now he's speaking about the Gentiles, the unbelievers. 14 and 15, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law. That word instinctively is uh, where it's the word phusis where we get the word Nature, their nature, they do it in their nature. These not having a law are a law unto themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, their thoughts alternately accusing or defending them. Now, you can see that unbelievers are not off the hook. What does it say here? For when the Gentiles, that's basically the unbelievers, the non-Jews of that day, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these, the Gentiles not having the law, are a law unto themselves. So what do we learn? If you remember from our last teaching time, <clears throat> first we learned that the Gentiles, there's no question, are without the written law of Moses, but they are not without some knowledge of God in their conscience when they do things whether right or wrong. We've also learned from the text that God has implanted a conscience, literally a, a kind of moral voice, into every human being. He says they show the work of the law inscribed or brought those written in their hearts. So this is why they can be judged in terms of a moral conscience, which God has given to each one of us. That word written, again, the word gratis means to inscribe. So the moral conscience implanted or inscribed in each of them leads them to a sense of responsibility. Their behavior reveals an innate awareness of God's moral law. Paul says, do instinctively. That's, the, again, the word infusis or nature. God has implanted church in every person the works of the law. It is part of every human being's nature. That's the word infusis. Listen, even your pagan nations who want nothing to do with God you went to the farthest, remotest parts of the earth where never heard the name Jesus. Even they punish murder and stealing. They teach their children, their children that stealing is bad. They, without knowing why, strive to, to attain a certain moral standard. And Paul then continues through the theme of what he's saying here. Their conscience, bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing 
or defending them. Vine's dictionary defines the word conscience very interesting. Vine's defines the word a co-knowledge with yourself. Co-knowledge with yourself. Interesting. It is an awareness that man has of himself in his relationship to God. It is the process of thought which distinguishes what is morally good or morally bad. Now, every human being has a conscience that was given to them by God. In fact, that conscience is, is evidence of our moral nature. It is proof that God bears witness to himself in our hearts. So we can think of it as a voice which tells us that, hey, certain behaviors are wrong and that we should refrain from doing those things. Think about the sense of shame you have when you say or do something that you know to be sinful. Think about that. Your inner voice will condemn you for that behavior. Notice what Paul says. Their thoughts will alternately accuse or defend them. So church, whether you and I like it or not, that voice, that monitor God has implanted in each person by God himself will express its opinion and condemn us when we are wrong. That, that Greek word thoughts here is the word logismos. talks about your imaginations, your reasoning. So it would seem then that the business of our conscience is more of a function of telling us what is wrong and condemning us if we do it. So then we should be obeying our conscience. So this is why, bringing this around, this is why the Gentiles are responsible. Even though they do not have the law of Moses, it by no means suggests that they do not have a standard by which they can be judged. Their conscience proves that there's a standard. So look at verse 16. He says, On the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. I want to make sure that we all take a good look at that verse. On the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Now, this is going to be hard to fit in some people's ear, but we're going to say it anyway. <clears throat> that word secrets... Kruptas, word secrets, it means the concealed things. Those things with, that are inwardly logged deep in our hearts. How will this judgment of our secret life, the secret sinful life that we will t- at times pamper because we want control over everything, how will that judgment be done? Paul says through by means of Jesus Christ. So, church, what do we glean from this teaching? Hear me this morning. God the Father has given God the Son full authority to execute judgment on all of mankind. Please understand me this morning. With God, there are no secrets. We can't hide our heart and our thought life from God. In fact, he knew what you were going to think long before he even created you. Because God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He knows the beginning and the end all at the very same time. He knows what we're going to do before we do it. I can think of when I was younger, he'd go, oh, not that boy. Oh, sure, he's been that way with all of us. 
He knows our sinful, illicit thoughts, our secret fantasy life. Scripture says Jesus is judge. Now, some may be asking, well, Pastor Jack, where does the Bible teach us that Jesus is a judge? I'm glad you asked. Put up John 5, 22, verse 26 and 27. Look at some corollary teaching. Where does it say that Jesus is a loving God and he loves us and we're all going to sing kumbaya and everything's going to be all right? Well, what does the Bible say? For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to who? The Son. Verse 26 to 27. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him, that's the antecedent, he gave him, that's Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Make it, Church, listen, there's a man in heaven. He's fully God and fully man, and his name is Jesus Christ. Don't ever let any false prophet tell you differently. It is clear from the scriptures that God the Father has given God the Son full authority to execute judgment because he's a son of man. It is Jesus Christ who will appoint to each person his final destiny. Please do not die without surrendering your life to Christ. There's no partner parole once you're standing before God. I want us to be honest with ourselves this morning. The Jews of that day admitted judgment and even welcomed it when it came to other people, the Gentiles. But at the same time, they tried to shield themselves behind what they thought to be a privileged position. There are no privileged positions. God is no respecter of persons. Look at these questions. How about us? Do we also at times try to hide behind some false thinking that we're okay? Do we find ourselves passing judgment on others while thinking that, hey, we're not all that bad at all. Look what so-and-so's doing. How about this one? Are there any secret sins that we're nurturing right now? Are we providing sinful nourishment to a secret sinful fantasy life of things that we should not be involved in, in here and in here? Make no mistake about it, our secret sins will be completely disclosed and there will be this searching judgment that will sever the bad from the good. How about verse 17? And again, Paul's just building on this theme. But if you bear the name Jew, you rely on the law, you boast in God. Now we need to understand what was going on back in Paul's day here. So we've got to travel back in time just a little bit. Many of the Jewish leaders of Paul's day <clears throat> were making some really extravagant statements about the law, the Torah, so much that they were actually putting the law in place of God. Ultra-legalistic. Paul makes it clear to them that the use of the law will bring knowledge of God and will provide some outstanding teaching. But this by no means makes them superior in any way to the Gentiles or the unbelievers. So Paul has three privileges that the Jews were boasting in. I think I have a slide for that. You're bearing the name Jew, you're relying on the law, and you're boasting in God. 
So now the Jews were attempting to use this as evidence that they have some special secret relationship with God. You got to remember back then to be called a Jew was one of the greatest things that could ever happen to a person. To be a Jew back then, it meant that you had a very special status with God. So who were these Jewish people? Well, they were a chosen people called out and separated from all other human beings by God as a possession for himself. And it was a religious status shared by anyone who belonged to that covenant people, the Jewish people. So they were boasting about that, and they were rejoicing that. And Paul, he himself was boasting about that before he was saved. Look at Philippians 3.5 up on the screen. He, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Back in Philippians, he says, listen, I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee, a separated one. So Paul obviously knows how they think. But then the second statement he makes is that they are relying upon the law. So they think that because they had the Ten Commandments, they had this possession of the law, and the Gentiles, who were the unbelievers that they didn't, they just thought they were dogs and they were outside of God. They felt that they were God's favorites, so they rested upon the law. They were resting upon the rituals and the ceremonies and all the entire Mosaic system that was set up for them that day. They felt, hey, we're in no danger. Everything's cool. That brings us to the final and third point. They were boasting in God because of all of that, not because of who God is, because of who they were. <clears throat> so they believed that they were the only people who know that there is only one true and living God. Everyone else believed that there were many, many gods, and it's not much different today, church. They know this because they saw their false gods made out of wood, stone, precious metal, and they would say idolatry foolishness. Today it's fancy cars and homes and lots of cash and money, all that. So their thinking is, hey, God is one God. We're worshipers of that one and only true God. And yet they would bring utter, now listen, here's the problem with that community. They would bring utter shame to God, and as a result of their behavior, other people would be blaspheming God's name because of what they saw in them. Church, the whole tragedy of the Jew is a tragedy of hypocrisy. They were hypocrisy or hypocrite is where we get our English word actor from. Back in that day, they would practice being actors to pretend to be somebody else that they weren't. So Paul moves us to verse 18. Here's two more things that they were boasting about. They were approving the things that are essential being instructed out of the law. So we, as we look at this, let's remember what Paul's dealing with here. Now he's dealing with the hypocrisy of the Jews and that they were relying upon their knowledge of the law and upon the fact that God gave them the law. And he's already made it clear to the Jews that there's no difference between you and the Gentiles. They felt it was inconceivable that they would be under God's wrath and condemnation. Look at verses 19 through 23. It says, you're confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind? <clears throat> you're, you're confident that you're a light to those who are in darkness? You're confident that you're a corrector of foolishness? 
You're a teacher of those who are immature, having the law, the embodiment of the knowledge and of the truth. You, therefore, you, you, you who are teaching another, why don't you teach yourself? You who preach that somebody shouldn't steal, aren't you stealing? You who say that you should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Meaning, are you unchaste in your actions and thoughts? You who abhor idols, do you rob the temples? Are you taking things that belong to God for yourself? You who boast in the law, though you're breaking the law, aren't you dishonoring God? So what is Paul doing? Paul's saying, well, you know, yeah, you guys are correct. You have all this knowledge of the law. You have this awesome privilege of having the written law by the very finger of God on stone tablets. But he says, listen, all that's meaningless if you're not responding with the sincere and consistent obedience of walking with the Lord. In other words, they were not practicing what they were preaching. And it is this obedience that Paul was saying is lacking in your life. So as I continue to reflect on Paul's teaching here, Paul was accusing them of hypocrisy. You teach others, but you don't teach yourself. You tell others they shouldn't steal, but you steal. <clears throat> you tell others not to commit adultery, but yet you're committing adultery. Pastor Jack, what does that mean? God will never want you to sit there and marry somebody else if you're still married to somebody right now. Oh, got quiet now. I don't know about you, but all this hits me. Does it hit you? So the hypocrite, the hypocrites, to pretend what you're not. And again, as I said a few moments ago, it's what back then they used to call a stage player who would act under a mask. You know, back then they would wear a mask when they did all their shows and stuff like that. A counterfeit. You see, church, here's, here's some markings of a hypocrite. A hypocrite is always pleased with himself or herself. But a hypocrite never seems to see the conscience of their own deficiencies. Very good with 20-20 vision and seeing somebody else's sin and problems, but yet they have cataracts when it comes to seeing themselves. And listen, you know, the word of God is the Visine treatment. It'll get the red out. So a hypocrite is always good at pointing out other people's faults and sins. But man, when they are confronted about their own faults and sins, they're blind to their own blindness. Hypocrites will never seem to show humility in themselves. This is all characteristic of what Paul was trying to hit home with the Jewish people of that day. <clears throat> See, the Jews felt that they were on these wonderful terms with God, and God would never, ever handle them that way. Hold on, buddy. After I'm done. After I'm done. So let's look at Luke 18, 11. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not a swindler. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not like those tax collectors over there. How often have we said things like this under our breath? I'm glad I don't do those bad things like so-and-so does. Did you hear what so-and-so did? 
into the years. I'm a godly person. I'm not like so-and-so. So church, the mark of a true hypocrite is revealed in their absence of humility or complacency or a heart full of boasting and pride. Hear me this morning. A person who is truly godly is a person who's not a showman. This person has an awareness of the sin and deficiencies in their own heart. It's called humility. But you see, church, a hypocrite never takes the time to examine their own heart because they don't even think they need to do it. What a dangerous place to be. They don't see a need for self-examination. Scriptures say, let's examine our ways and return to the Lord. We all need an examination. I'm sure you've met people like that. I like how Paul puts his question in a form that cuts right to the heart. He knows full well that the Jews of that day were guilty of practicing the very things they were telling other people not to do. <clears throat> and the damage that does to a church today is horrible. Scripture is giving you and I some important lessons here. When you and I practice the very things we tell others not to do and do it anyway, we dishonor God. If you're a believer, that is dishonoring God. And that's what's really sad about all this. Jews would boast about the law, and they break it. So we can boast about being a Christian and end up doing the same things unbelievers do as a daily way of life. How do you know you're born again? The things you used to practice start to lose their influence over you as you draw closer to the Lord. I hope that the Lord gives each of us the grace to examine ourselves before we take the time to examine others. And each of us must be willing to apply the truth of Scripture to our own lives first and first be humbled by it so we can see how we can really help our brother and sister. And then verse 24, we're almost done. We're going to have a great dinner from Kitty today, so we're almost done. Verse 24, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Just so we're clear, what does the word blasphemy mean? What did Paul mean when Paul used the word blasphemy? The word means to defame or speak evil of somebody. You're assassinating their character. You're speaking evil of them. That's what blasphemy is. Have any of us ever been guilty of blasphemy? Yes, all of us. We can't look at the Jews and say, look how bad they were when we are just as bad. Here's some questions. What kind of picture do we show others about God through our speech and behavior every day? Oh, man. Uh-oh. What kind of picture do you and I show others about God through our speech and behavior? Does the way you and I talk, does the way you and I behave make people want to know more about who this Jesus is? How is God being judged by our behavior? Boy, it got real quiet now, Dr. Carter. Now, you've got to keep in mind, up to this point, the Gentiles, they had no direct knowledge of God that way. So the Jews made the claim that they were God's chosen people. How do we apply this today? People will judge Christianity by how they see Christians 
living out each day. You and I are to be living, breathing, walking, translation containers of God's word. Each of us needs to ask ourselves this question. Is God's name being blasphemed because of me and how I live and behave? Am I going to the same places I used to go to that were sinful and evil before I got saved? Am I sucking down the drugs with the drug dealer, but yet going to church on Sunday? Am I hitting the bars and getting blasted, and yet going to church on Sunday? And the people there are going, that, that's a Christian, and he goes to that church? I don't see any difference between his behavior and I. Are the people who know you and I saying, what's the point of being a Christian? Look at him or her and how they live and speak. My friends, they are judging Jesus by our behavior. They also judge the truth of God the same way. You'll hear them say things like, these Christians, these so-called Christians, well, they talk about their Jesus and his truth, but really, look at their life. Is that what the truth of Jesus leads to? Is that the kind of life and behavior that's a result of him dwelling on the inside of every believer? So then they judge the truth by what they see in his representatives. That's If you're saved, that's you and me. I will say it again and again. How you and I live, church, generates consequences in our lives and the lives of other people. So they're going to judge Christianity by the way Christians live. You see, back in Paul's day, the Jews did not always make being a Jew something that someone would want to be. They have the law, but they chose not to obey it. One final point I need to make here is this. People will judge salvation of God by what they see in his representatives. Think about it. Jews were always talking about deliverance of God and salvation. The Gentiles will look at them and think to themselves, is this the kind of blessing that God gives his own people? Here's some other questions. I'm almost done. Church, do the people that don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, do they see the do they see the hope in you and I? There's all this talk about how the world's coming unglued, coming to the end. We see the horrible, horrific insanity going on in Ukraine. We see all of this stuff going on. All the prophecy teachers are going out of their mind. These are the last days and all that. But here's the reverse of all that. Do those people see the hope in you because you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Do they see that we're holding on to the promises of God? Do you believe when God says, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, I am with you wherever you go, even to the end of the age, do you believe him when he tells you that? Amen. Or do they see us living as miserable people who have no hope, chasing after the enticements of this world? And make no mistake about it, Satan, Satan wants you chasing the enticements of the world. He's going to look at you and say, the bottle of your wife, the crack of your family. And they also judge the power of God by what they see in us. Do the unbelievers look at your life and my life and think to themselves, where is their God? Let me end with this. Let's look at Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. Here's David. David says, Lord, search me. Search me, O God. Know my heart. 
Try me. Know my anxious thoughts. Anybody having anxious thoughts lately? Ooh. Try me. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. And look at verse 24. See if there's any hurtful way in me, and then lead me in the everlasting way. <clears throat> search me, O God. You know, in the Hebrew, that's a pretty powerful word. The word search in Hebrew has the idea of God constantly digging down and penetrating through deeper and deeper and deeper as he searches and he scrutinizes and he examines your heart and my heart closely with critical attention. It's the idea of just keep digging and digging and digging until you uncover something. Search me, Lord. Know my heart. This isn't just a passing knowledge. You know, I know that person by name, but I don't really know him type of knowledge. This word here has the idea of a very, listen, very deep, intimate knowledge of someone. Think with me this morning. God can search us out not only because he sees the inside of you and I, but also because he made you and I. You were only alive because of him. Make no mistake about it. Church, nothing, nothing is invisible to God. There's, the word invisible isn't even something that comes to mind with God. He knows every thought you're going to think before you think it. And he, listen, he has the ability to searching, as, Paul, as David's talking about here, has the idea of penetrating into these secret areas of our hearts that we think are very inaccessible. Nobody's going to know the real me. Try me, test me, examine me. David is saying, Lord, examine my heart, examine my thoughts. Lord, examine my conduct. Lord, see if there's any hurtful way, any painful, hurtful, dishonoring way in me, any painful way or lifestyle or har harmful habits. Think about it. What are the harmful habits that are in your life or my life that we need to throw away and give over to the Lord? What are those things that you and I need to surrender that are harmful and hurting? And, and think about it. The person they hurt the most is God. What are those things? As I finished this morning, this is a serious prayer that David was praying. Why? And if you want to pray this prayer, you're asking God to do some painful heart surgery in your life and my life to expose any sinful lifestyle that needs to be dealt with? Are there those things in your life that need to be dealt with? Why do we want to continually recycle the same sin over and over and over again, expecting a different result? You know now the bottle doesn't satisfy. You know the drugs don't satisfy. They promise you freedom, but they deliver slavery. That's what they do. They say, oh, come with me and you'll forget everything. Oh, yeah, you'll forget for a little bit. And the next thing you know, your life is a shattered ruins. So if you're going to pray this prayer, if you go home today and read that verse, those verses, Psalm 139, 23, and 24, you're asking God to do some heart surgery. God knows us, church. God knows our weaknesses. He knows our sins. He knew that David wanted to separate himself from anything that's going to separate him from God. We need the same thing. We need to separate ourselves from anything that's going to separate us from God. Here's one thing you all know. Someday you're going to drop dead. 
Only an idiot thinks that they're not going to drop that. Someday you're going to draw your last breath, and there ain't no, there's no coming back. They can hit you with those paddles, but you ain't coming back. All the narcon in the world ain't going to bring you back. And then you're going to stand before God, and you're going to have to give an account to God for everything you did, whether good or evil, while you were here. And if you are not covered by the blood of Christ, you have no chance. You don't do a five-year deal with God in hell, and he says, oh, you're, you're up for pardon and parole now. Now you can go. No. When you die without Christ, it's forever. It is forever. Hell is not a figment of imagination. It is not a place where they're going to be sitting on a beach partying, sucking down booze and minty juleps. Hell is a place of weeping, pain, gnashing of teeth, in, in human, things you can't even imagine. So as I close, do you have the courage to pray the same way that David prayed? Do you love the Lord enough to be completely open and honest with him? Ask yourself that question. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in a moment. This is a chance for you to finally get clean with God. If there are any secret sins, well, they're going to be handing out the elements, the deacons. The people that are able to partake of the Lord's Supper are the people who have placed their faith and trust in the finished work of Christ. What does that mean, Pastor Jack? It means that you believe in your heart that Jesus died on that cross and paid your sin debt in full, past, present, and future. One, if only one drop of blood was ever spilled, it would be enough to wash the world clean of all of its sin. So think about it. If you were to drop dead today and you were to draw your last breath today, you hear me this morning. Do you know with certainty that when you draw your last breath that you would be ushered into heaven with the Lord? If you guys don't know that, you need to surrender your life. What does that mean? You need to repent. That means you need to come clean with God. First of all, that's not for your benefit, for his benefit. That's for yours. He already knows everything you were going to do before he created you. You need to come clean with him. Lord, I slept with somebody I'm not married to. Lord, I've done this, that. Whatever it is that you've done, you need to confess that sin to the Lord. It's not going to be a funny time when you're standing before him. There's not going to be any jokes or giggles when you guys are standing before him. Make no mistake about it. Have you confessed your sin to the Lord? Do you believe that Christ came, lived a simple life, died on that Roman cross, shed his blood? Listen, he shed blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. He shed blood when the Praetorian Guard was punching him in the face. He shed blood when they took that flagellum, that whip with hooks on the end of it, going across Christ's back and pulling it back and tearing his flesh off his body so that his spine was exposed. And he shed blood at the cross of Calvary for you. He died because he loves you. Amen. You can't earn it. You cannot be good enough to make it into heaven. You will never be good enough on your own. There's no act by where you on your own can make yourself good enough to get into heaven. There's no backroom deals. You see, it's a gift. The only way you go into heaven is by receiving Christ into your heart as your Lord and Savior, believing that he shed that blood to wash your sin away. I can't make you believe. Only God, the Holy Spirit, who chose who he was going to save before the foundation of the world, he's the one that makes you come alive and believe. So if the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart this morning, and you listening around the world, if he's speaking to your heart this morning, and he's telling you now's the time, it's time. You've been doing it your way so long, and look where it's gotten you. 
Now's the time for you to come clean with him and say, Lord, I blew it. I'm a sinner. Confess your sins to him. He says if we confess our sins, he is then faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to continually cleanse us from all righteousness. When he comes inside of you, something happens on the inside, supernaturally, that wakes you up. And all of a sudden, you start seeing things very differently. You start seeing the things that you used to believe were a lie, a lie from the pit of hell. And you start to see how real he is. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads this morning. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and do business with God. I'm going to ask the deacons to come forward and um, get the... Um,